thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, Up for a Chat, about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Kim Morrison from 28.com. And I'm Cindy O'Meara from changinghabits.com.au. And we're missing the beautiful Karen this week. Yeah, that's because her Matt didn't want to do this. No, her Matt just um, decided that this wasn't going to be a show for the week. Matt isn't someone that's willing to express what it means to live with uh, Karen Karen Smith. Smith. (laughs) (laughs) So we are incredibly excited. You have all been asking us for the nearly three years to hear from the gorgeous men behind us two who are losing it. They're losing it, both of them are losing it. <laughs> so I'm just going to let you listeners know that, uh, that these two have a bromance going on. Uh, they are each other's uh, long-lost boyfriends, pretty much in the same way that we are, gorgeous Cindy. So we just want to say welcome, you delicious souls. It is such a treat to have you on board, on air at last, and really... Um, what, well, what could we say? Thank you, and thank you for putting up with us. Oh, <laughs> we can talk. We can, oh, so, geez, we're allowed to chat on this. We're allowed to talk. <laughs> Actually, it's not about them. Uh, it's all about us. Yeah. What do you think about us? us. Uh, yeah, we'd like to know what you think about us. <laughs> no, no, let's not go there. Let's not go there. Well, I want to start with mm. the delicious Howard O'Meara, but I would love to know... Um, you know, just give us a, both of you. Give us a bit of a background so that these guys get to understand who you are and why you're such beautiful parts of our lives. So, how we, you know, tell us your life, what it was like growing up. We're, we're fellow Kiwis. She's a bit outnumbered here. She's very outnumbered. <laughs> oh my gosh, Andrew. very outnumbered. Three Kiwis <laughs> and one uh, one Australian. Oh, well, part awesome. Kiwi, part Kiwi. Yeah, well, my dad Kiwi. was in Kiwi, yeah. so yeah. I am thirty. Yeah. I am fifty percent Kiwi. Hoorah! Hoorah! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so, okay, so what was it like growing up? Um, very much in the beach area, so virtually where we are now, so North Shore of Auckland, Takapuna, uh, Murray Bay, but when I grew up, it was sort of, it was sand hills, dirt roads, uh, a lot of freedom, bike to school, all this kind of stuff, so very different from what it is today, very different. Um, so a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom, but just grew up camping, beach, surfing, um, freedom. I think it was a big one. You're a bit of an us. adventurous, aren't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, considering yeah. how are you... <laughs> We're all kind of laughing now. Yeah. I was just sitting here with seven stitches in my hand. Yeah. My wrist, I was so. going to say, our, our <laughs> listeners need to know that every time the four of us get together, someone ends up in hospital for some reason. I'm not sure what that's about. <laughs> my shoulder cost 10000 I'm still not sure who, who to invoice. <laughs> <laughs> She's fallen off a horse behind oh me. Oh, my Lord. Um, had her arm wrenched out of her shoulder behind Howard when you were oh um, skiing. Gosh. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. so when they didn't come on holidays with us last time, we got injured. <laughs> yeah. And now Howard went off stitches. by himself without Danny this weekend and got injured. Got injured. Yeah. So adventurous is definitely a key word with you two, which I think is what we both love about you. But, Howard, you've been a teacher, a policeman, and a doctor of chiropractic. Tell us how you went through those and what made you keep changing. What's your key? Yeah, look, I, I don't know, really. Um, people say to me, you know, what is it? What, what is it drives you? Adventure, it drives me. Challenge and change drives me. So uh, where did my adventurous spirit come from? I don't really know. My dad was uh, very much outdoors, very much camping, that kind of thing. 
but his generation, our parents' generation, one career, you know, and the, the company will look after you, this kind of thing. My generation and subsequently uh, further generations, our kids, you know, you have five or six careers as you go along. Mm. So where did that come from? I don't really know. Very high goal setter. And I set my goals. And once I reach the goals, there's nothing else to do. You get bored. I get bored. (laughs) Yeah, I get bored very quickly. So when I look at my career, you know, chiropractic was the longest I've ever been in a career, 25 years around about. And that's probably because family, you know, you get get there, you've got to provide, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas before it's been eight years, you know, you reach a goal, you you set your targets, get the goal, whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. They'll usually look around and say, okay, what's next? Mm -hmm. What's the next adventure? You know, rather than getting stuck in something that's just becomes mundane. I notice that all of them are educationally based, really, or supporting or protecting, like very much around um, making sure the community's safe, our kids are learning, and also then looking at healthcare. Mm. Um, In the same token that health has been really important to Danny, was there any significant thing that made you choose chiropractic as above any other medical... Oh, back injury of mine. Really, that's playing football uh, in New Zealand. So it's a back injury of my own. But if you have a look at it, it's all around service. So the school teacher, you know, helping people, policeman, chiropractor, um, bus driver, <laughs> tour guide, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, and now with, with changing habits, CEO of changing habits. So it's all in that service industry. Where did that come from? I don't know. Servicing when, your wife. Servicing the wife. Just right. saying. <laughs> <It's the same. laughs> <laughs> she goes there. Daddy's every eyes time. are. Oh, yeah. no, she oh, goes there every time. Time. Oh, no. um, Sorry, sorry, Yeah, just keep it clean. Keep it clean. Um, so, where did that service come from? I don't really know either. Same as that, the adventure. Just something that kind of developed, um, and loved it. You know, I always wanted to be a policeman. Mm. Did the school teaching first. I always wanted to get a, some sort of qualification behind me mm-hmm. uh, to lead on to further things. I don't know. The, the school teaching did me really well on the police force because I got that job with the royal family. Um, mm-hmm. And that was due to my teaching background because I was actually working in a school. Uh, talk, but, talk about your stint with the royal family, what happened there and how you got chosen um, and how long you were there in it and who you were with. And Go on, give it to oh, us. I'll give it to you. Go on, go on. Well, I was fortunate in terms of being selected, uh, there's about 50 of us out of all the New Zealand police, um, got down to about 50, then down to 20, then down to 10, then we had a big fitness test uh, and personality test, I guess you could you could say, and got down to three of us. So myself and another guy worked with Prince Edward, looked after him for almost two years, uh, and we had another spear guy as well. So how did I get I, I believe because of my teaching background, because he was actually in a school, he came to Wanganui Collegiate and was a tutor at that time so we actually lived in the school with them so I was well familiar with that that type of surrounding uh, had a ball you know I mean it was fun I mean stressful because you, you, you're out with them 24-7 yeah we went camping we'd go shopping down the local shops all this kind of stuff uh, lots of trips went through the South Pacific that was that was interesting um, Are you going to tell time. a story about Which what happened one? to you in South Pacific Cow? <laughs> Which one? With the king. The king. You were with the king. Oh, so he's bringing up a story there. So go I have, on, I've go got on. to tell a story. I've got to tell a story. So we're sitting in Tonga. We're in Tonga. And it's the king of Tonga who's now who's now deceased. But king of Tonga, prince of Tonga, all the ladies in waiting at this big, long table. Prince Edward. In, and Prince Edward was there. Myself, the other policemen, a couple of uh, Tongan policemen, all on this big, long table beautifully set out you imagine it's, it's, it's the kingdom of Tonga it's the king of Tonga 
just magnificent, right? But we're all sitting kind of cross-legged, so it's not that comfortable, we're very cross-legged. And then behind the big table was all these sliding glass doors. And then just outside of the sliding glass doors were about 10 or 12 um, ladies, and they were just singing, and it was just beautiful. It was absolutely magnificent. Um, but unfortunately, kind of halfway through the whole dinner and the whole conversation, and I'm sitting pretty close to the king, and... Um, Sorry, yeah, you just <laughs> get my hands the off the table. table. <laughs> the so I'm sitting very close to the King of Tonga, um, and right next to me is Prince Edward, and the other side of him is the other New Zealand policeman, and then a couple of Tongan policemen and, and a few other dignitaries there. And I had to go to the loo. <laughs> I was just busting to go to the loo. So um, we're sitting there in suit, you know, and I'm I'm fully loaded up. I've got my pistol on me and all this kind of stuff. So, And we're highly trained, alert policemen. I've got to get that in, okay? We're highly trained, <laughs> very alert, right on the ball policemen. Right? Yes. And there's sort of, you know, there's stuff happening and you've got to keep watching all the time. So I've just got to go to the loo. So I get up and I know that the loo's outside. And I get up and, <laughs> and one of the glass doors was half open, half closed, right? And then there was a screen door as well. And I guess you're laughing there, you can hear what's coming. So I get up and I walk out, just excuse myself. And again, just imagine the king's there and everyone's there. <laughs> and I walk smack into the glass door. <laughs> and it's just like this thump. And I go reeling back and, and just about collapse onto the floor. Making a massive scene. And I, yeah, massive scene. You know? So this highly alert, highly trained policeman carrying a firearm smacks into this glass door, you know, and almost knocked myself out. And I kind of get stunned and I kind of, you know, get up and I could see Prince Edward we just kind of mouth the gate. Going, well, we chose a good one here. Just, <laughs> yeah, I kind of snuck out and snuck back in. Yeah, And it, the other two policemen never let me forget it. Oh. Oh, I love yeah, it, I love yeah, it. it was funny. It was, it was, it was painful. <laughs> it was painful, but yeah, yeah, but I a lot of fun. It. You know, I see, I see. How do I get into these things? I don't know. I just go looking for adventure. You're an adrenaline junkie, yeah, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. I'd yeah, like yeah. to tell one more story, and then and we'll go across to your beautiful husband, who's sitting very quietly there, looking at Rose. Rose. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like when you tell me when you met. Well, you met Princess Diana. Um, you, you babysitted William, but when yeah. you met the Queen? Oh, um, yeah, we were we were very privileged. In fact, we were. I'll take a step backwards. So, some years ago, when I was a school teacher, um, I tripped around Australia, tripped around Australia, tripped around England, and did all the usual tourist things, which is Windsor Castle, Buckingham Palace, all that kind of thing. And um, when I was doing the tourist thing, I stood outside Buckingham Palace and took a photograph looking into Buckingham Palace. And then Windsor Castle, same thing, tourist. And I stood outside the certain gate and took a photograph up into this turret. Now, why I did that, I have no idea. But some years later, I'm actually inside Buckingham Palace looking out of my office window. I say my office was the police office. Looking out straight at that gate where I took the photograph from. And we actually lived in Windsor Castle. So I lived in Windsor Castle for two weeks. And my bedroom was up in that turret that I'd taken a photograph of as a tourist. And I looked down, I took that same photograph of that same gate. Yeah, just amazing. In the opposite. Yeah, just amazing. It's almost, um, it's almost along the lines of manifestation or, or things like that. It's oh, so you know. Many. Who would have ever thought that? Like, how many people take that photo? Oh, yeah. And who would have ever thought that, you know, 
know, he would be back there, but on the other side where all the tourists are looking into and yeah, yeah it was meet amazing. the Queen and meet... It was amazing. Yeah, yeah I went back recently, um, but unfortunately that area of Windsor Castle now is closed off due to security and you can no, no longer get to that gate and get as close to Windsor Castle as what you used to. You are certainly um, an adventure freak, Howie, oh. and you have some extraordinary stories. Oh. Well, you were asking about whiskies. the Queen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we were um, so we were in Windsor Castle just for having a quiet day, and one of the uh, the Queen's policemen comes racing into to where we were staying because we were just lying. But yeah, quick, 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 get dressed, get dressed. You know, what do you mean get dressed? Oh, you've got to get your suit on and your tie. What's happening? What's happening? Oh, I can't tell you. Can't tell you. So we quickly get dressed and we enter this car and we're right down um, St Windsor Castle, right out into the paddocks. And in the distance, we'd see two people on horseback riding towards us. And as we got closer and closer, we realised it was the Queen uh, with her bodyguard. She was on a horse? She was on the horse. Well, they did do a lot of riding. Yeah, they, they ride everywhere. Um, but rode up to us, got off a horse and came over and shook her hands. And this is, you know, quite unusual because usually she has gloves mm-hmm. and that's kind of the ritual. She took her gloves off which is really unusual, completely unusual, and shook her hands, which was a real privilege, and said, oh, you're the guys looking after my son. Thank you very much. Oh. And we just had a sort of five-minute chat, and she got on a horse and wandered off again. <laughs> yeah. But the other stuff, I just got to take the other So in Windsor Castle, our policeman takes, the her policeman takes us up to the top of Windsor Castle where the turret is, and there's a flag flying. That's the Queen's flag flies up there. And we're up there, and we're just having a good old view, you know, looking around. Looking, this, is the day, this is the day before we met the Queen. Looking around, looking around, you know, and uh, and when we met the Queen, she said, "Oh, and you're the guys are up on my turret." <laughs> <laughs> so where she was at that time, I don't know. She'll probably walk in the corgi somewhere, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, So we were, yeah, we were well and truly spotted, you know, at that time. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Aaron has the most amazing stories of being a policeman. Like he can keep. Us entertained forever yeah. with these stories, but let's um, go to you, Danny, and mm. let's see what your life was like um, when you were being brought up in Auckland. You're in Auckland, weren't you? Yeah, Auckland. Same, yeah, same geography, similar geography to Howie. Mm. Absolutely. So Howie in Murray Bay, and went and Howie the mentioned went to Westlake Boys High School, which was the rival college up the road. And I went to Takapuna Grammar, co-ed school. Um, and some very forthright people at an ex-All Black who was the principal guy called Jack Kelly. Played only a couple of test matches with the All Blacks. But um, I came from a very left-wing, very liberal uh, upbringing. Uh, my father left when I was seven. So I had this house full of women uh, that really were quite influential on me. Obviously my mother. Um, one of my mother's other very good friends, a woman called Helen Booth, lived downstairs with her daughter, little Millie. Had a sister, and I had a younger sister. Um, and my uncle Reuben, who was, still flies through New Zealand, he's a purser in you know, cabin crew in New Zealand. So he was in my life a lot. Um, and then some of mum's other, as I inverted commas, thespian mates. So when I was in between doing different codes of, say, rugby and playing soccer and cricket, um, I had two wonderful formative years when I was 11 and 12 when I went to the Maidment Theatre in Auckland University. And we did pantomime things, and we did sculpture, and we got up and did theatre sports and stuff like that. So when I look at where it's led me to now, funny enough, going full circle, in terms of either then going to play cricket internationally, but also in my role of being more entertaining um, and talking to a television camera and commentating and being in that industry of cricket, um, I look at that as, as being a, a wonderful education 
um, having listened to Howie, where you know, like a comedian, you know, you develop and change. I was fortunate that I had that change of playing cricket, doing cricket, living and breathing it, to then going into writing about it, talking about it, doing radio talkback shows, and then doing magazine shows around the game, um, and doing all these different facets, which is great variety. I mean, I've, I've loved it. I mean, and then coming here, I mean, <laughs> spoiled coming here. It was a lovely other, other resort for me. Um, and if I'm sort of peeling back the layers and being honest, um, it was quite a catalyst for me to come in terms of drama. Again, drama, my life. Um, drama at home, and my sister committing suicide. So when Kim said to me, with Fleur getting on a plane to go to Whangarei, and I was doing a radio, I was doing some sales and marketing, I was also doing a radio night show, I was also doing some cricket commentary, I was also doing a cricket show, was that, Dan, do you think you could come and live in Australia? I went, shit, yeah, when? <laughs> Just like that, probably a few more expletives. On air. But, um, You'd also already met Howie and Cindy then. Yeah. You'd I'd already met Howie. And in 2004, you were on there. That was Easter 04. Easter 04 yeah. coming over before the beach house. wedding. At the mm-hmm. beach house. And you guys were in the beach house. And then we asked, then Kim asked you if we could come and stay in the beach house. And that was like May 06. So we ended up meeting in late September of 06. So it's been nearly 10 years. Mm-hmm. Can we go back to when you were chosen to play for New Zealand? Can you? Just um, describe the build-up to that and then being chosen and how it felt for you to play international cricket um, for as long as you did. And mm. Can you just go through that? Mm. Um, I was fortunate to see, in 1977, two great protagonists, which were Dennis Lilly and Richard Hadley, butting heads. So I saw that on TV, thought that was pretty cool. Then my mother took me with a guy called Mervyn Thompson, who was an art director and a, um, did plays and was a writer and he was passionate about cricket as well. And I remember him, he was going through a bit of a crisis and was asleep on my mother's lap, you know, he was going through a whole breakdown and we were watching the great Imran Khan dismantle and break down the New Zealanders. So I watched that in January of 79 and I'd made at that point then when I look back on that and I ran into my principal of Takapuna Grammar, which was Murray Deke, who came along in February of 1980. And when I'd been there for the rest of that year, there's a big honours board big honours board role thing that's painted with the gold writing of you know former pupils that have obviously been international sports and whether it was canoeing, whether it was Olympic sports, whether it was whether it was rugby, tennis, whatever, water polo. They were all on there. And I winked at Murray Deca one day in late nineteen eighty and said to him, Mate, I'll be up on there one day. Mark my words. And he just looked at me and winked and went, Danny, it's nice to dream big and have, you know, high aspiring goals. Nice one, Dex, I said, so I walked on it. So then that's where it probably started for me, around that late 70s, 80, and I thought, this How is what I really wanted to do. So I was 14 in 1980, 14, 15. So I was saying, this is what I really want to do. And so people looked, they would laugh to you. And people asked me about this too. Was, it, was that a motivating thing for you to say, you know, because people, not so much ridiculed you, but said, look, you couldn't do it? You know, mm. they said, no, you won't be able to do that. And people weren't so much about it. They were actually just, oh, Nice, Dan. Probably thinking, you know, yeah, 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 right. <laughs> Let's get real here um, and do other things. And I was a bit like how I was going to go down when I was finishing Takapuna Grammar. I was going to go down to a physical education diploma um, in uh, in Otago, and then I was going to go and follow some other mates to do that. As it turned out, it didn't happen because then I um, I went straight from school went to England. So and it's a bit similar to how we went and did like a bit of an OE and trekked around, but it was through cricket. 
to go to England and did the Windsor Castle thing and loved all that. And I think music was a big thing for me. Music was massive for me. So the combination of the music, travel, history, and you've probably been listening to me about dates and getting dates and all that, very key for me, bang, 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 chronological, <laughs> smashing out dates, smashing out time, where I'm going, what I want to do um, is so that was a driving factor to say, I really want to do this. Once I'd been in England, and I'm talking about 1984, first, and just a bit of club cricket. So about 18 at this stage. 18, yep. and then moving in, and then sort of realising, and then um, being in a trial, playing against the New Zealand side that was to go to just, Pakistan. Just while you're in England, playing for Hereford Cricket, I love the story of all the boys asked you if you wanted to play, what were you doing there, and you said you wanted to open the bowling with Sir Richard Hadley. Oh, yes. Tell that story. Yeah, there was... I'd been in 84, so this was 86, and um, and I'd obviously, now I was 20, so I'd filled out a little bit more. I hadn't got any taller, little, little hobbit runt. Um, so that's why they looked at me and thought, who's the shaft lift inspector? G'day, son, what are you doing all these geezers from London? You know what I mean? And so they're going, oh, what an idiot. Well, you run a, want to run a bowl fast? Look at you, lunatic. So I said, no, um, I'm going to open the bowling switch. I didn't say I want to, I'm going to. So I said, I think the and I go, whatever. And so they, I said, listen, the next time I'm here, you guys will be paying to come and watch me play. And we'd had this whole banter with it because all those, those English, they just love winding you up. And this Cockney brothers, they're just hilarious. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. And they just, yeah, yeah, righto. So that's 86, wow. 1987. So playing back home, got on a tour to Sri Lanka and then a bomb went off. So that bomb went off outside the train station. That tour was aborted after one test match. So I didn't play my test match. Just, day, just before you go there, though, that feeling when you got your name called out to get into what you yeah, got into yeah. that team. What That's how what did I you... want to know. Yeah, it's funny. It was, it, well, of course, it was a blast. I mean, an absolute blast. And thinking, wow, I did is, it. This is the start of this is the start of another part of your journey. That mm. you know you wanted to be doing it at home. In a way, there was part of me that yearned to be called up and you'd be playing at home straight away. But at the same time, I was just grateful. I think I was entirely grateful that here was part of the dream to be realised to go with Hadley and these guys, <laughs> who you'd watched on the other side of the fence as a teenager, really, and got into trouble at school, wagging back in 1982. We went to school and got suspended. <laughs> and watched the great Dennis Lilly play Richard Hadley. It was just brilliant. So all of that stuff of crossing the bridge and crossing the divide from fairy tale land to real reality. So that was really cool. So you didn't play nationally, you went straight internationally. Well, in terms of playing, you, you played first class cricket for sure. You had to play mm. for your province or your state, and I was doing that for Auckland. So I'd had a couple of years of that. Oh, okay. So that's that interim time of that 86 when I said to these guys, you'll be, and in London, you'll be coming to watch me play. So I just about, I just started playing some first class cricket. So I had a couple of years of that. And then in 1987 did that, and then and later in 87... So, 87 was the call-up not to play in New Zealand, it was to play in Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka. Yeah. Tell us about the bomb. So yeah. the bomb, yeah, that was freaky because there was a lot of the whole... The whole thing with the, um, uh, the Tamil Tigers and in the north of Sri Lanka, the rebellion, of all that stuff going on there. So there was lots of bombings going off, a lot, a lot of political unrest. Had you played a game? We played a game down in Gaul, right down the southern tip of Gaul. Howie's been there. Went down to Gaul... Um, and we played a first-class game there, and I remember playing in that, and that was a blast because I couldn't get over how hot it was. The humidity factor. I mean, Queensland is a laughing, a bit like Cairns or been right up there, but very, very sticky. And we slept with these nets. We slept with these mesh mosquito nets over our beds. It was, so it was a wonderful cultural shock of going from little old New Zealand to Sri Lanka and all that heat and to play. 
Um, and then, as I say, the political unrest, the bomb went off outside the train station, uh, killed quite a few people. Were you nearby? What had happened is we would drive past that way to go to the ground. So that was the concern. But this was the last day of the test match, day five, and the bomb had gone off, and we were oblivious to it. But we could have been coming home that way and it could have gone off. So there's all these you know, ifs and buts, but still, heightened situation. Uh, and more of the, you know, the, the terrorist, you know, the rebellion thing of um, the Tamil Tigers and making a statement and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, we aborted that tour. So that was a little bit frustrating for a lot of us. Before you go on, you've been in another area with another bomb blast, haven't you? Mm, yeah, so that was 1987. In 2002, when I was commentating, I'd finished playing by 1997, so it was a 10-year playing time of 87 to 97. So this was five years later. So I was commentating in uh, Karachi, uh, New Zealand's tour of Pakistan there. And to be fair, prior to that, I missed out on another tour because of my first hernia operation in 92, so just peeling back the time frame. From 87 into 92, I couldn't go. New Zealand got another bomb blast attack in 1992 where a suicide bomber on a motorbike went through to take out this high-ranking military army officer um, and drove into the front of the hotel and blew up there and, and the charred glass went into the physio's room and a couple of guys were having physio treatment all through. Could have been the wrong place, wrong time again. Mm. So that tour got aborted. Well, not quite. No, sorry, it didn't. They flew in new guys. They, sorry, they carried on with that tour because they presented you know, to the New Zealand career. They could stay on security-wise, I don't know. Anyway, that happened there. 97, another bunch of planes were blown up at the airport. New Zealand were playing in a tri-series there. I didn't go. I remember just being on radio covering some of it. But again, it seems to follow the New Zealand side around, which is really spooky. And then so in, nine, so in 2002, I was there commentating for TV um, with um, another good old Aussie mate, the old Lily and Tomo combination, and Jeffrey Robert Thompson, he was commentating on that. And another mate I played against, guy called Ian Bishop, a West Indian, bombing off outside the hotel because these French um, nuclear sub-tech guys were helping build a nuclear sub, all this technical stuff for the Pakistan Navy. Because you can appreciate, it's a, it's a strong point for the United States, is Pakistan and Karachi's major seaport. So we're in there, and um, 7.45, like clockwork, the little minibus had got carrying about 10 of these techs. One guard, I think there's a guard with a gun there, um, and then the bus driver, and it pulled out, and the suicide bomber just drove straight into him. Huge amount of explosives, because the, the engine of that car went across about, it went about 80 metres, and landed across the intersection of this garden around the roundabout. And, and where were you? So we were in the Sheraton, the team, both teams, the Pakistan and New Zealand team, were across the road in the Pearl Continental. So that was just freaky. And I'd, I'd only gone and opened my curtains, opened my route slider, went out, looked down the driveway of the Sheraton, had a look down there, pulled those clothes, facts under the door from Mrs. Morrison, can believe <laughs> there. So I sat on the loo, read that, <laughs> as you nice did back place. in the day, sat on the loo reading a fax instead of the newspaper. Okay, got the info, beautiful, popped that down, went back round. Two double beds, so I started to do a few exercises, did a bit of stretching, a few press-ups, a few sit-ups. I'd open the big curtain, so there's those, that muslin white cloth, and, and then it went off, boom. And all the charred glass came piling in, and luckily there was that muslin <gasps> cloth there, and it all just caved in on that. And you just, and then the alarm bells go off, and you're freaking, mm -hmm. and you know what it is. And remember, we just had September 11. So September 11 had just happened six months before. And here we were in May, and this was happening. 
and of course the phone rings and the scary thing of the phone ring while alarm's going all this glass had caved in your room and it's Jeffrey Robert Thompson the great Tomo is going F, F, this and that, because he's swearing his head off because that's what he does too. <laughs> he's pretty colloquial carrying on. So he's effing and blinding. And now I go, mate, look, just get your passport. I don't care what you're wearing. Just get your passport and your wallet. And let's boogie on down the stairs, brother. We're getting out of here. And I said, well, come and get me. And he goes, well, what room? I said, you just ran my room, you idiot. Get down here. Come and get me, Tomo. And so he comes screaming down a couple of floors. He grabbed me and we bolted down these stairs. But I'll never forget going back afterwards. Tomo used to go and go for a morning walk. He would go from... I mean, he could have been blown to smithereens. The big... The big... Um, the, the, dark, the guard guys that are dressed up in big uh, cloaks and um, turbans and stuff, he was blown to pieces. The guy that mentioned Gritch at the door, just up the driveway. So he got blown, killed with a blast. Awful. And um, just, yeah, horrific scene of being in that part of the world. It's funny, you don't time. think about the tragedies of being an international sportsmen or anything do you don't think about what they've gone through and what they endure so it was a big shock for us to know that he'd been through this horrific you know thing and and actually survived it mm. so it was a it was a pretty well, I rang time. you I, I rang you because I, I actually borrowed someone's phone I rang you because it was all over the, the radio guy across the road was with the team a guy called Brian Waddle and he was all over the radio. mate of mine, that's what happened, a mate of mine rang me, that's right, my phone, rang me, rang me and he said, listen, um, just heard the bomb blast, Brian Waddle's on the radio. Um, mate, are you guys okay? I said, Jesus, is it that quickly, within sort of 20 minutes, half an hour, it had been back on radio in New Zealand. Um, um, and we didn't know. And no, so I had to ring. So, I said, so he rings and he's running. And all I can hear is him puffing. And I thought he was on the loo. (laughs) 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 He was reading the facts on the loo. So I've gone, really? Really? Did you have to bring me while you... And he's going, no, babe. But I'm just letting you know that I'm okay. That there's blood. Oh, shit. And he's... Like, he he was talking about arms and legs. And I'm going, what? What? Mm. And he goes, just ring mum and ring Bobsy, his grandmother, and just your mum and let everyone know I'm okay. But we're running for our freaking lives. And that was it. It was... Because we were in the back of the pool, they brought everyone in the back of the pool to the Sheraton because it was safer, it was right mm. behind all the frontage and everything. But it was amazing seeing, all, looking back, all the glass set up in the atrium had all, all just caved in, that front side of it. And here's this, I'll never this woman, she had her two little toddlers, one she was carrying, the other one she couldn't, he was a bit older. And I said, I said, I said love, you've got no shoes on. And there's this glass, could have been every, you know, just charred bits of little glass. So I picked this kid up, um, and they were English because it the husband was working for Shell, and poof, just yeah, I remember just the adrenaline and pumping of that, of that bomb blast, that noise. It's really interesting that you know you're an international sportsman, and this is what's mm. happening. And, and Howard has done a lot of international sports um, trips around the world mm. and to places. Hot spots. Anything, anything happened? Look, there's always um, there's always scares, and you don't hear about them. Mm. Uh, and it was really interesting to me because of my security background that I used to watch the security that went on, particularly Olympic villages, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and as the years went on, uh, it just got heavier and heavier, more and more security. So there is stuff happening, stuff does go on, you just don't hear about it, they kind of keep it really quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was with the Prince, we had quite a bad scare. This, this terrorist came in from England. We knew he'd come in, we lost track of him at the airport. Um, I was up, I think, two nights, three days, just no sleep, um, Standing out, sleeping outside, or not sleeping, sitting outside the prince's door. Um, so there is this stuff going on. No, you just kind of don't hear about it as mm. much. 
Which is quite good because otherwise I think it put fear into oh, you wouldn't go anywhere. No. We live this oblivious life, not really knowing yeah, all we kind of these do, things that happen. You know, there's a lot of stuff goes behind the scenes you never really hear about. Mm. But just one thing that just was really interesting, Danny made the comment where Deke said, you know, dream big. Mm. Um, and you asked me what kind of drives me as well, and I just clicked in, you know, when you said dream big, I always dream big. Mm. Always. Mm. And the other thing for it is is people say to you, Oh, you can't do it. Well, that to me is like, that's Red-red. just such a challenge. You know? <laughs> you know, or what do you want to do that for? Mm. Mm. Um, and particularly happened in the police well, because of the government that. sort of mentality. And I, you know, people listen to it maybe, but, you know, a lot of friends say, well, what do you want to do that for? Why do you want to leave Australia and go to be the chiropractor? What, what on earth are you thinking, Howard? Yes. You know? How many people the, get that all the time? Yeah, yeah, secure yeah. Job, yeah. yeah. yeah secure job. Yeah, secure job. You know, why do you want to leave? And you can leave your friends and your mates and the place you know. You know, and the more they said that, the more I wanted to go. Mm. And I imagine, probably mm. same with you, the more people say you can't do it, you know, you're too short, mm. you're not tall enough, mm. you're too stumpy, mm. can't Jesus bowl. being rude you know? to you, isn't he? <laughs> I'm up all the time. Uh, that was great. And then, then and I look back and I said, was that a challenge for me? Was it laying down the got Not really. Because isn't it funny, I lived in my own little wilderness because of where we lived, and you were spoiled, really, when I look back and, and having gone overseas and done a lot of things to third world countries was that you just simply desired it. And I've run into schoolmates since, and, and they, the underlying thing was classic, actually, and they says, geez, Dan, um, obviously proud of you, but he says, geez, you, uh, you showed a lot of us, because obviously a lot of us thought, you know, good on you, but we never thought you'd go that far. We never really thought you could do what you've done, you know, create what you've done or live that dream. And it's funny, I, I think like well, anyone, you know, if you deeply desire it enough, if you really want this bad enough, and you're going about, and, and look, all of that um, interesting thing that we've touched on in terms of we, we do and use in our lives, like manifesting and visualisation, visualization. was mm. massive for you me. You can see it. Yeah, mm. my, mother, my mother instilled that, and she, she gave me these tapes. I'll never forget she gave me these cassette tapes. <laughs> tapes. Yeah, I've <laughs> heard that for a while. Cassette tapes to listen to at night about visualising and being positive, and then this healing, other, this other healing orange light. And these other different coloured lights, and, the, and, and she was big on all these other crystals, which were probably because I think oh, it's a bit esoteric and a bit funky. But it was, it was a thing that was alternative, but allowed me to think and visualise and see yourself doing it. And then almost like you all the time dream about it. It was hilarious. You'd, you'd dream a lot of cricket. Oh, God, how boring. Did both of you, um, I know Danny does, did you too, Howie? Um, Danny's got this little notebook that he put quotes in or things that someone would say or you know, things that he was given about manifesting his dreams and his goals. Are you both that kind? Like, do you both write your goals down now still? And I write my goals down. Do I write so much the quotes and so on? No, not really. Um, I just can see it clearly. Mm. You know, I just see it. Mm. And it's right in front of me. Uh, and, for example, there's things happening in the office at the moment. Like, I want to get our stuff into China. Hong Kong, UK, and uh, America. So I actually went out and bought flags of each of those countries. And they're sitting up in the office, big flags. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I walk in, that's the first thing I see. It kind of goes smacks you in the face every day. Bang, 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 bang. Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of thing that I do. Do I write down in a diary? No, not really. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can just see it. You're very you know, visual. You're, very a vision, visual. you're visionary yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. See, sometimes with Cindy, I, you know, I say that we... We're, I want to be a global company that feeds the world. Mm-hmm. 500,000 people working for Changing Habits. Mm-hmm. People say, you're not 500,000. 
Okay, what's wrong with that? Mm. You know, but that includes villages and farms and all this kind of stuff that will produce you know goods and so on to feed the world. Is but it, I can see it. Whereas sometimes with Cindy, with mm. that kind of stuff, it's a bit scary for her. But to me, it's just great, and it's mm. right there, right in front of me every day. Bang. Yeah. I remember um, we've just had a weekend of education a couple of weekends ago, and uh, one of the things I did say is I was very happy with uh, my book and speaking and doing you know nothing else. I was very happy doing that, and then that I, I talked about that Howard had joined um, the organisation. And I said what Howard saw was a huge vision. What I, I also saw the vision, but I worked on a weekly basis because it was too scary for me to think further ahead. Whereas with the two of us together, like I'm happy doing what I'm told to do versus Howie, who's out there doing all this global stuff and all this other stuff. And in the beginning, I was... Like every time he'd, when he moved us from the house to the first office, I went, why have you bought this big, you know, what, what, how are we going to fill this office and warehouse? And we filled it and we bought, got another one. Mm-hmm. Then we filled those two and we went into a bigger one. I've stopped worrying about it now. I don't, yeah. I don't worry about I don't think about it now. I just leave that to Howie. You've given him the freedom. Yeah, just let him go. And because then I don't, I have no worry anymore. I don't fear anything. There's nothing to fear though. When no. you have a fearless leader at the front taking charge and exactly. proving himself the whole time, which is a male, a beautiful male role yeah. of, of creating and, and providing and protecting. So I just get to do my little thing, yeah. what I love to do, which is the speaking and writing and mm. creating and how it such a good runs the whole company. Mm. And, and it is that vision that you've mm. both talked mm. about um, that you have, whereas I'm probably the person that's just happy doing that, whereas I think you, Kim, have a, a, a visionary look mm. at things. You, like, mm. I know it's there, but without Howard being behind the scene, it's really, really, it would have been really hard for me to even get that education going or to even do that weekend, mm. you know, that I did. It's, um, it's always really interesting, so also talking to people about goals, you know, and they say, well, yeah, you set this goal, what if the goal's wrong? You go, well, there's really no such thing as a wrong goal. You may set the goal and you may have to readjust that goal, mm. but, you know, a lot of people have that fear I'll set a goal, and what if I don't reach the goal? I'll set that goal. What if it's the wrong goal? Mm-hmm. So they don't set any goals, and they don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's so important to set that goal. And I used to quote to our kids, actually, about goal setting and getting to the goal, that a plane will take off, let's say, from Auckland to go to Christchurch, and it doesn't go in a direct line ever because of wind and currents and clouds and whatever. So it's always heading off on one tangent, then they've got to correct it, comes back, get back, but eventually they do get to the goal. So your goal setting in life is like that. Playing golf, all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) You get into the scrub and into the girl, G-A-D-U-R. I'm always adjusting. Always adjusting. But that's what it's all about, you know. Set your goal, readjust it if you have to, but make sure you just hold that vision. Do you both, well you Howie, do you feel um, your goal with changing habits um, is that a legacy goal now? Like this, to have five hundred thousand people working for changing habits is going to take quite a few years. Is that are you happy now to stay in this role, or do you still think there's more roles for you to do 
beyond being the CEO oh, of Changing Heaven. Gee, well, I stay in this role. No, that's not my personality. I mean, I've already morphed really now from being sort of the, the, the go-to and the Genial. creating it and, and growing it to the CEO and still doing everything and putting the GM in there. So I'm a whole different role now. Again, and I can see probably another five years different role altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, legacy, yeah, I'd love to see the kids come in and take it over. Mm-hmm. Love to, you know that, and that's where that five hundred thousand will come in. Mm-hmm. Will it be in my lifetime? Probably not. Would it get close to it? Damn right, it will. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, two hundred thousand. If you don't, if you don't kill yourself in the process, <laughs> <laughs> let's just talk about that, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> if that's what yeah. adventurers do they yeah. get hurt sometimes <laughs> tell them yeah. or they hurt yeah. others yeah. Um, Danny what about you you set the goal oh, this is interesting because they're both, if you notice they're both opposite personality types yes. <laughs> yet they're both high achievers mm. so Danny set a goal of playing cricket for 10 years tell us that story and how you actually you did just play cricket for 10 years yeah look, it did. is that right is that the goal that you set it was yes. just 10 years well, you didn't say 20 years no no look I'd said, here's another one, I, I, I wanted to do it for 10 years. And look, I think I was being realistic and grateful, I think, for the thing I was doing, which was fast bowling, um, was very tough on the body. So I was very grateful um, that I could go for that length of time. And, you, and no one can, you know, in terms of write that script. Mm-hmm. Like it might have lasted only five years with an injury or eight years. But look, as it turned out, it was pretty much 10 years. Um, and there was changes afoot there and, you know... Um, Different people, like different bosses, come and go, don't they? And so you mm. know, then you've got different choice of angles. I did laugh with Kim when we, then I started commentating, and I always wanted to be out there. And I could clearly, obviously, we articulate quite well, don't we? All four of us can talk quite well. Um, we get the words <laughs> out and go for it forever. And then so I thought, well, look, in terms of moving into the realm of um, commentating or talking about the game, or like selling the game in a way, um, in New Zealand, was that. Um, I said to Kim, um, we were down at, we were down in Wellington, in, at the Basin Reserve. Yeah, there was a Boxing Day Test match on. That's right. And then someone was just asking. There was a group of us around there, with these young guys and some other commentator mates were there, weren't they? And, oh, Danny, and look, how long do you envision? You know, could you see yourself envisaging doing this for a while? Do you like this angle? I mean, television or radio or writing about it and stuff like that. I said, Oh, you look. And Kim goes, really? And Kim looked at me. And, and how long do you want to do this? And I said, Oh, I have it. Twenty years. <laughs> and that. 20 years would be in two more years' time, minimum. So, you know, when I said that in 1998, we're talking two years from now would be 2018. And and I've looked at that and different things. How how and here I was thinking it was all over when he retired uh, from yeah, cricket. Yeah, so Kim's like, no. Jesus. So you've been in cricket nearly 30, or well, more than yeah, 30 yeah, years. Yeah, you really, yeah. But different facets of it, which yeah, is amazing. Yeah. You can play, well, then you can talk about it, you can write a bit about it. Um, you know, in terms of making judgments on it, and then this whole revolution that's come along. Again, about the Kerry Packer revolution from 1977, there was rebel stuff and day night stuff came in in a whiteboard and coloured clothing, to this other revolution now of 2020 cricket, very short version cricket. So there's only 20 overs each, not even 50 overs each, which was Packer's. Oh, was that why it's called 2020? Yeah. I always wonder why yeah, it's yeah. called 2020. Yeah, because it's 20 overs each. So there's only 40 overs of the match. So how cool is that? Well, exactly. You learn something new every day. Oh, I, do. <laughs> I hear you guys talking about it all the time, but I never think to ask, well, what does 2020 mean? Where's Danny going? He's going on another T20 gig. Yeah, exactly. Like my, my sister congratulating him on his hat trick he got for New Zealand. Oh, congratulations on that hole in the hat, she said. The hole in the hat, yes. We're not quite sure where that one goes. 
So in terms, so we both, we can see that you're both very creative, you're both able to adapt, you're both amazing at, at really creating the pathway that you both love. What would you say, can we get a little bit deeper here and go into about what men are like out there in the world? Do men talk? Are men um, courageous enough to share their emotions these days? What's both your take? I mean, we know how you're slightly older than Danny, but like from your vision, <laughs> got that one in because Cindy's slightly older than me. Um, <laughs> I was waiting on that one. <laughs> um, what's both your take on what it is to be a man in this world here and now? Mm. Good question. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's going to open up a can of worms. Go on. Um, do we need well, therapists? what's it like to be a man in this world today? Um, I think it's tough. I think it's pretty tough. I think men in general have lost their way. And in this world today, um, particularly someone like myself, who right from day one has always really spoken up and tried to uh, keep my own personality or my own drive or who I am, it's tough. Because uh, in the days now of, dare I say it, women's liberation that came in some years back, um, more women in the workforce, particularly in the CEO jobs, so the high jobs. And on that too, it was interesting because in, I think it was Time magazine, nine, 15 years ago, uh, they interviewed this lady, I just forget who it is, Danny, mate, because you can pull out those facts and figures you know who it was and when it was, what time and, and everything. But I remember reading about this lady who was a top CEO of one of the top Fortune 500 companies. And they interviewed her in two or three hours and she and said, if you had your time over again, would you do what you were doing? And um, all of them said, no, I'd rather be with the family, raising the family, going back to what the grassroots were. So have we lost our way as, as a male race? Yes. Has society changed a lot? Yes. Has it changed for the better? I don't believe so. I think we need to more clearly define our roles as to male and female, uh, and particularly within the household. Once maybe the kids have left home, it's a whole different ballgame. But within the household, within the household structure, within the family structure, very, very important, I believe, to go back to the old roots that we used to have. So that's going to, yeah, I can see, I can feel yeah. bits going to open up no, quite a bit. We were talking you know. about it in our last podcast. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, sorry, just on that too, there's, and I find men too have lost their ability to speak up. And it's also interesting, there's very few, if not none, on the coast here, men's group. There's men's sheds, you know, and these, these guys go in there and, you know, Create. What do they do? Well, I don't know. I'm not well, quite we, sure. They're going and... Um, it's so funny. We were talking stuff. about this yeah. in the last podcast, that there yeah. was no place for men. No, no. But the men's shed. But we yeah. didn't know what they did. Yeah. Well, I'm not, look, I'm not quite sure either. But there's also, like, there's women's shelters, there's women's this, there's women's that. And when I was a, a policeman as well, there was a lot of guys out there in trouble. And we talk about domestic violence, and it, and it all comes in on women. There's a lot of domestic violence out there against guys. And they have nowhere to go. They have no one to talk to, no groups to talk to, no support groups. Really interesting, there's just a guy on the coast here who's created one um, called The Conscious Man, and so it's on the 28th of this month, the first meeting ever, I'm going to go along and have a, have a listen. Um, and they're trying to really get men involved and get the guys to speak out more and just become more involved in their families as well. I think they've become very disorientated from families due to pressure. So, yeah, men need to stand up. 
they need to speak up, and they need to retain their role, and they've lost their role. Would you say, would you like to be dropped back into the 1950s? In terms of the economy, no, but in terms of the way things were structured, yes. What about you, Danny? Mine's mine's different from Howie's, only because I came from a very female-orientated scenario. So I, I understand where Howie's coming from totally. There isn't there isn't that thing, and because I was I was a front person for men's line, but that was more the front front end. Once you really hit the wall, there was nothing, uh, no structures in place in terms of having a place where like Howie's going to support groups to discuss things out in the open. That it came down to the old ambulance, you know, at the bottom of the cliff rather than a fence at the top to stop all that stuff. So really, um, in terms of the structure for men, and all four of us have been to a very wonderful, fascinating woman called Jacqueline Trost, um, and we've all seen her at different times for therapy, and she too, is along the lines of what Howie's saying, in terms of the defined roles have changed, so there's a real mesh over and a real mixture in society of women having such stronger roles. Look, I'm, I'm not averse to that at all, but I also understand where, in terms of if the woman is at home with the group of the family, we're talking about whilst, as Howie's saying, whilst the nest is still there, that you know the offspring is still at home, then that whole wonderful thing of either doing it together or the woman helping in the kitchen or wanting to be there, wanting to feed and prepare food like that, and that's not being chauvinistic. I think that's just being mm. that lovely nurturing ability of the yin and the yang where women have that rather than the men have that. And the men are traditionally hunter-gatherers, Peel it right back to the basics, caveman days, all that sort of thing. Get all that. But I understand there's a mix. And as Howie said, is it for the better? We'll soon find out even more as time goes on. But there's real contrast and conflicts of what's going on and why are some of this next Y generation having so many issues. You know, there's lots of arguments for that. And we could take up a massive amount of podcast time about the balance of the male teenager of where he's going and what he's about and how good he feels about stuff because of the dominance and women being out there in dominating positions, whether it's CEOs, whether it's prime ministers, you know, the whole fronting of it and how that's really changed the landscape in the last two decades. And so that was interesting with Jacqueline Trost. I found that fascinating that she, too, what Howie's on about, getting a bit more clearly defined roles where the women add such an important and integral part of the ingredient, if you like, at home, whether it's around the food issue, around discipline time and stuff. Like, you and I have this issue too, because I'm away a lot, I'm on the road a lot, doing my passion, if you like, and my, of hunter-gathering, I'm away a lot, whereas you're at home a lot, running the house, running lots of things in the house, and the discipline side of things. So then I come back at times and upset the apple cart a bit in terms of where it's at. And I get that too and say, that's not an easy dynamic as well. And so, a lot of men are doing this now. They're mm, in FIFO, fly in, fly out. Yeah, yeah. Where they're away for a month at a time, back for a month, or away three months, All back women. for three months. Yeah. Gone back, are the days where yeah. we'd say, wait till your father gets home. home yeah. <laughs> you know, we're going to play there. Well, forget that in three months, yeah. won't we? Yeah. 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 A, there is a breakdown of that part of society in general. Mm. You know, risk is sounding chauvinistic, I'm not, but you would look now at the divorce rates and, you know, young couples who are getting married and they're split up very shortly afterwards and all this kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, there's a real need to go back to our roles and define our roles a bit more. Um, 
I always talk on our podcast around the distinct roles that I believe are the essence of men and women. Tell me if you think you agree then, given what you've said, because mm-hmm. they don't listen to our podcast, oh. so they don't know what we talk about. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> oh, what is the uh, it's just a pleasure to get a word in at you at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> They're such liars. Um, but I, always, I too, even last week, talked about it, is that the, the woman's role at essence is to nourish and nurture. Nourish and nurture is our essence. And the man's essence is to provide and protect. Or hunt and gather is what you just said. And I do believe that men can nourish and nurture. They can they can cook. They can give beautiful guidance. They can actually have that real soft feminine aspect of their masculinity. And I also believe that women can provide and protect. If you've ever seen a woman try and protect a child running across the road, you'll see the masculine energy come to the fore. And I truly believe that that's appropriate. And if we only learn to honour that, I truly believe relationships would sing a lot greater tunes. Do you both agree with that kind of belief? I mean, yes, we're in a very modern world. Jacqueline felt that women shouldn't be running countries, nor should they be on the front line, nor should they be in top um, masculine roles. She believed the feminist movement, whilst it was great on one level as far as, you know, being abused or being put or shunted or not paid well and things like that, that was great. No vote. No vote and all those things. The feminist movement was fantastic, but it's almost like we've taken a little bit too far again now and women don't know who they are anymore and men don't know who they are anymore. Okay, so we are actually going to take a pause here because it is so nice to have both our beautiful husbands in the room and we want to continue the conversation next week. So if you've enjoyed this week's podcast with the gorgeous Howard O'Meara and Danny Morrison, then please go to www.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat and place your comments and questions or anything you've got there on this week's podcast. If you'd also like to go to facebook.com forward slash up for a chat, then please post your comments and feedback there. Don't forget to go to iTunes for it to give us our five-star rating. And please know that we're going to split this so that you get to enjoy these guys for another hour next week because we know after waiting for three years to get them on, there's a lot more we've got to ask next week. So join us here next week on Up For A Chat and become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. We'll see you soon. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.